Coming up this hour, should pastors just stick to preaching the gospel? And then for the rest of the hour, we'll be joined by Pastor Scott Sauls, author of the new book, A Gentle Answer. You're listening to The Common Good. Hey everyone, welcome to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, and I don't know why I said welcome like a creep. My apologies. Uh, <laughs> you can guarantee that's going to happen again sometime in this show. That's somewhere in my brain. Before we dive into the particulars, Brian, how are you feeling right now? I'm doing well. I'm doing okay. It's a beautiful day outside. And you know what? We're about to have uh, Scott Sauls for multiple segments. So it's a good day today, man. Yeah. If ever there was a person that you fanboyed about, I think it probably would be the right Reverend Sauls, if, I, if I'm uh, guessing yeah. correctly. Is that right? Yeah. This might turn into the Chris Farley thing, right? Like, uh, hey, do you remember that book you wrote? <laughs> that was awesome. <laughs> that was great. <laughs> Well, before we get to that and this segment, a couple of things. You can find us on Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show. That's where we post articles. You can send us a message if you have suggestions for future shows or feedback on previous shows. You can also rate and review that page. That helps out a whole lot. Plus, we're podcasted wherever it is you get podcasts. Subscribing, rating, and reviewing there helps out a whole ton. Plus, Instagram and Twitter, at Common Good Talk, where the party never stops encourage you to follow both of those accounts for uh, additional information, additional dialogue and conversation. We would love for all of those to be places for us to have uh, continued conversations because we know that the time we have here on the show is limited. Mm -hmm. All right. So here's an article, Brian, out of Missio Alliance. We've referenced Missio Alliance a fair number of times, especially the last six months or so. Andrew Arndt, I don't know if you're you're familiar with him or not, but he wrote an article in the headline caught my attention. It says, Pastor, can't we just preach the gospel? I'm imagining you as a pastor have probably heard something like that in the last month or so. Is that right? Uh, certainly I have, whether it be in person or on social media. But one place that I've really appreciated that question is uh, I feel like we've asked almost every pastor or maybe everyone that we've talked to that we've interviewed over the last three weeks. And man, have those answers been really uh, eye-opening and encouraging. And uh, But yeah, no, that question I think is really hanging out there right now. Well, he begins by saying this, the murder of George Floyd on May 25th, which is wild. It was that long ago already. I know. Provoked national outrage from peaceful protests and marches to prayer gatherings to riots. Our country's long history of racism is being dragged out into the open and exposed for what it is. At the least, an egregious and ongoing infraction against the ideal of liberty and justice for all. At most, an offense against almighty God. As far as the latter, altogether late. As it may be, the evangelical world is finally acknowledging that this is an issue that can no longer be ignored. Pastors and leaders are addressing it in every available medium, blogs and articles, sermons and digital forums and more. I would include a radio show. Even (laughs) more, white pastors and leaders are thankfully starting to realize that the situation will not be rectified until the terms by which it has uh, heretofore been defined, which is another way of saying we're realizing that our black brothers and sisters need to lead the way on this. We, myself included, are learning to talk less and listen more. We're actually going to talk a little bit about that idea later in the show, in particular with Louis Giglio. He says, this is good. This is very good. Thanks be to God for it. Still, there are some in our churches who are frustrated. Pastor, they'll say, why can't we just preach the gospel? Given how urgent this particular issue has become, one hears this less and less, but still the complaint survives. In the interest of faithfulness to Jesus Christ, I'd like to briefly outline, a.k.a. Brian, for you, this is a list, why the idea of, quote, just preaching the gospel, uh, which is usually defined preaching exclusively on the forgiveness of sins and the hope of eternal life, is biblically unsound. 
Indeed, I'd like to show how, quote, just preach the gospel is actually no gospel at all. Mm. Here are a few reflections. So why don't you take the first one? Yeah, and that's uh, an interesting way of setting it up, not just how it's a bad idea, but how it's no gospel at all, I think, uh, is is powerful. Number one, the gospel is good news for the entirety of human life. When the angel appears to the shepherds to announce the birth of Jesus in Luke 2, he proclaims good news of great joy for all people. And why will there be joy? For unto you this day in the town of David, a Savior has been born, the Messiah, the Lord. The coming of the Messiah in the minds of the Hebrew prophets and poets signaled the imminent defeat of the powers that enslaved God's good word, uh, God's good world. Think about Isaiah. He says breathtaking vision where it summarizes where he says a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse from his roots. A branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and of understanding of counsel and of might of the knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decides by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness, he will judge the needy with justice. He will give decisions for the poor uh, of the earth. And it goes on to say at the end, uh, the examples could be multiplied, but the point would remain the same. And it is this clear, the good news, the gospel given to and carried by the church is the gospel of the God of Israel, saving intent for the entirety of, of human life for the whole human condition now achieved in the life, death and resurrection of Jesus, the Messiah and implemented ongoingly by the Holy spirit. There is simply no other gospel to be had. That's good, man. This next one might ruffle some feathers. So we'll see. Let's just jump in. Number two, the gospel concerns both doctrine and ethics, both belief and behavior. There is, as I've observed, tucked into the complaint about just preaching the gospel, a twofold assumption. First, that if we preach about ethics and behavior, it will lead to legalism, which I've certainly heard that. Second, mm -hmm. if we, instead of simply uh, preaching the good news of Christ saving death and resurrection, minds and hearts will gradually and inevitably be transformed, and so perhaps will society. Let's address those in turn. On legalism, doubtless, this is a danger. It has been in every age and era, but I want to submit that the danger is more in the way our preaching relates ethics and behavior than anything else. If we preach on ethics and behavior as a way to curry God's favor, we have surely gone astray. But if we preach on ethics and behavior as that which follows from the transformation wrought in us by the Spirit, then we are preaching like the apostles and those first Christians. Paul called the Philippian believers to work out their salvation with fear and trembling and then went on, as he did in all his letters, to spell out in as much detail as he could exactly what that looked like. What do human beings rescued from sin and death actually do and not do? That question is the burden of the New Testament. Now we are in a position to point out what is faulty with the notion that if we, quote, just preach the gospel, all the needed transformation will inevitably come. If they did, Paul and Peter and John would never have written their letters. Let the divisions and sexual morass of the Corinthian church, the ethnic pride so evident of the Galatian church and the favoritism of James's churches be exhibits A, B, and C to demonstrate that specific teachings are needed in the process of sanctification. Having been so saved, the church needed to be continually dis uh, disciplined, discipled, disciplined, Disciple, oh, yeah. both of them. <laughs> the, way of, the way of the kingdom needed ongoing elucidation. Divisions and factions are out of place. Favoritism is forbidden. Jews and Gentiles are fellow heirs of the kingdom and called to share the table fellowship. Hierarchies that oppress and a slave must be brought in submission to Jesus Christ. Hoarding possessions to the detriment of others is a manifestation of hell. Anger and rage are unfitting for God's people. Sexual immorality is forbidden and so on and so forth. The habits of the old humanity die hard and the apostles 
knew it. I'll stop mm. with that one in the interest of time. Why don't you just mention briefly the other two, and then just we'll encourage everyone to read the whole article on the Facebook page. Yep. The third one here is the gospel is for the whole world, not just the church. Oh, boy. Uh, and yeah, exactly. So we'd encourage you to read that. And he says, one final observation. Any gospel that doesn't address evil aids and abets, and abets it. Mic drop. Boom. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I would encourage people to go read these because it's a very long article by Andrew Arndt. But it are you really. Gonna that, are you going to read that fourth? Oh, yeah. The fourth one is the uh, headline there. Yeah. Right, right. Just for the sake of time. But I would say to people out there uh, who, who do believe, don't we just preach the gospel? I would say Andrew Arndt here is saying, uh, yes, but I think you have a lacking view of the gospel. And this will ruffle some feathers. We'd encourage you to go read it. Yeah, let me just, I know that we're over time, but I'm going to read the last mm, two paragraphs of this because I, I just think it, it ends so well. The announcement, and just to remind people that evangelism, the God, it's an, an announcement, it's a proclamation that Jesus is Lord, friends, must reach down to our depths. On this issue, clearly it hasn't yet gotten there, but perhaps by God's grace, it's starting to. Perhaps by the might of the Spirit. Uh, ground that we have previously yielded to the enemy is being regained. Pastors and leaders who are striving to name and preaching a holistic gospel, one that has something to say about these most current incidents of racial tension, I want to say to you, please keep up the good work. And Brian and I would echo that sentiment. Jesus, the great liberator, the true and better Moses will be magnified. Our people will be discipled and our world, perhaps soon, perhaps late, will be healed. May it be so. Such a good article, much, much longer than what we had time to cover. I would encourage you, though, to go to the Facebook page, The Common Good Radio Show, and read the entire thing there. For the rest of the hour, though, our secret ghost third co-host, Reverend Scott Sauls, <laughs> author of the brand new book, A Gentle Answer, will be joining us for the remainder of the hour, and you're not going to want to miss it. That's coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey everyone, welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. You can find us a whole bunch of places on Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show, 1160hope.com slash The Common Good, Instagram and Twitter. I know we did both, at Common Good Talk, plus wherever it is you get podcasts. If you're a podcaster, if you wouldn't mind subscribing, rating, and reviewing, all of that does help us out a whole lot. And we are so thrilled. In fact, our executive producer typed into the rundown our ghost <laughs> third host of the common good. He's not aware of it, but the right Reverend Scott Sauls is joining us again. Thank you so much for being on the show today, sir. It's good being with you all. I appreciate that. Before we kind of get into the weeds a little bit with some of your blogs and your new book, A Gentle Answer, why don't you just introduce yourself briefly to our audience? Uh, sure. I'm uh, uh Scott Sauls. I'm uh, married to Patty, have two daughters, uh, high school graduate and college graduate, both recently. That's uh, Ellie and Abby. And we live in Nashville, Tennessee. I'm senior pastor of Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville. Right. right. And Scott, last time we had you on, we were talking a lot about uh, the coronavirus and a lot has happened in our world and in our country since we talked to you last. I'm curious, uh, for you as a pastor in Nashville, what have these last couple of weeks been like and uh, what's, uh, how has it been for you pastorally? Uh, you're talking about the last couple of weeks since we started having services to, uh, again, or are you talking about the last several weeks of coronavirus world? You know what, actually, neither. I was I was wondering what it's been like with since the murder of George Floyd and all that's been going on in our cities and just that discussion. I'm wondering what that's gotcha. been like for you pastorally. 
it, it has been, uh, you know, we've, we've been very um, engaged uh, in the conversation. Our, our church community is, is in relationship with uh, other uh, communities that, 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 that have uh, several you know, people of color involved with them. And, and um, you know, we're, uh, we're engaged in cross-cultural ministry uh, in our city and cross-cultural relationships. And, um, and uh, you know, it's just been a, it's been a time where, you know, we've encouraged our people, especially to uh, be quick to listen uh, and mm-hmm. slow to speak and uh, to try to hear what's behind the pain of uh, our black and brown uh, brothers and sisters. Mm. Uh, we've had several people in our community, uh, including my own family, who've been involved in um, you know, the peaceful protesting uh, post-George mm. Floyd. And um, yeah, so it's been, it's been on the front of, of uh, our minds, and mm-hmm. it's been... Uh, central focus of, of a lot of our conversation as well. Yeah. So your book, A Gentle Answer, just came out, and it's it's one of those books that seems almost prophetic in its timing, to be honest. And you've been releasing some excerpts on your blog. In the very beginning of one of them, you quote Dr. John Perkins, who said, this generation is the first to turn hate into an asset. Can you talk a little bit more about, about that idea? Because right above that, you have Proverbs 15.1, A Gentle Answer Turns Away Wrath. How do you apply some of those principles in a, in a time, in this cultural moment where everyone seems to be intent on sort of drawing us versus them type of lines. Yeah. Well, that, you know, that, like you said, that, that was a quote directly from John Perkins, who's the, um, you know, the famed civil rights, uh, mm-hmm. activist and, and, uh, even still in his nineties, a, a very, you know, open spokesman for the, values that Martin Luther King uh, put forth in his leadership uh, through the civil rights movement uh, of, of a peaceful protest or, you know, sort of the, the combination of, of, you know, prophetically speaking uh, on behalf of vulnerable populations while, while also uh, not resorting to violence. And so Perkins, um, you know, is a key leader in that Space and um, he's addressing what I think uh, it's, it's really difficult not to notice in our culture. And it's not just a recent phenomenon. It's been the last, oh boy, uh, I mean, how many years has it been where polarization and mm-hmm. uh, partisan politics gone really bad um, have, have been at the forefront of news cycles and the way we live our lives, the way we process the kind of society we live in, it's the very us against them kind of climate that we're in. And I wrote mm-hmm. the book uh, to address that, thinking that this would be an election season, uh, an election mm-hmm. year. Uh, mm-hmm. And the last and four years ago was pretty rough. And I thought, well, uh, maybe I can write something and put it out there in time to encourage at least some people, uh, you know, who read the book to, um, you know, consider a different way of engaging. And we haven't even talked about the presidential election hardly this year because uh, yeah. so many other, so many other concerns have risen to the surface. And so um, I didn't plan on, on all these different polarizing conversations to happen. And I'm, I'm sad that, that for all the reasons that the book is 
as timely as it is, but I'm also happy to be and thankful to be part of the conversation. Hmm. I'm wondering for the person out there uh, who wants to grow in kind of meeting uh, outrage with gentleness, how would they go about, what are some steps to growing uh, in that countercultural ability? Well, I think, you know, bearing in mind that the book is primarily written for a Christian audience, not exclusively, mm-hmm. but, but certainly primarily, we have to start with um, how Christ has responded to our hostility and to our, you know, desire and efforts to cancel him uh, out of our lives, mm-hmm. so to speak. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it says that we, when we were, when we were violently opposed to him, uh, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. When right. he was being crucified, he, he prayed on behalf of those who put him on the cross. Uh, Father, right. forgive them, for they know not what they do. And if, if we're the recipients of that kind of undeserved kindness, it seems that we ought to be uh, a good bit more difficult to offend than the average mm. person or people group. Yeah. Hmm. So you, you actually made a post on your blog, and you can learn more at scottsalls.com. The headline just kind of stopped me in my tracks. It said, I thought I was opposing racism. It turns out I was actually part of the problem. We'll probably get into this a little bit more later in the hour, but could you briefly set up what you what you mean by that? Well, wait, what I mean by what? I'm sorry, I didn't catch the phrase. That you, were, that you, you, you thought you were opposing racism, but it turns out I was part of the problem. Oh, yeah, you're talking about the, the essay that I... I recently posted. Yeah, I, I mean, that, that traces back to, a, I guess, a, a moment at Redeemer Presbyterian in New York when I was on the, the preaching staff there, and I, I gave a sermon and essentially said that uh, mono-ethnic uh, churches shouldn't exist uh, at all, <laughs> and, you know, that the, the, the kingdom of God is diverse, uh, and he's the God of every nation, tribe, tongue, people, group, ethnicity, and so... Um, you know, the, the idea of a white church and a black church and, and so on, um, is falling short of God's ideal. And, and, uh, while it, while it, you know, has maybe some merit, uh, in, in some respects, the, the argument does, it did not at all take into account that, um, the only, uh, mono ethnic church that exists, um, uh, or, you know that, that that existed, but that exists by choice is the white church that kept mm. that that had even in its own you know bylaws uh, that that people of color couldn't be members you know during, during certain right. Right. certain uh, eras of history and and even now there there you know there are pockets and places where where that is the case uh, and the black church formed because <laughs> the black black community That's wasn't right. allowed in the white church. And the black church is also a place where, uh, where, where black people can, uh, express their struggle and their pain and their lament and, and their experience, uh, you know, living in a a climate where they're minority or where they're the minority and where their people have been for 400 years, uh, oppressed and, and Hmm. in some way, shape or form, uh, in certain seasons more or less than others, but, but always, uh, always sort of at a, at a social and cultural and vocational disadvantage in the history of our nation uh, by virtue of their color and ethnicity. And, and you know, so, so the church is, a, you know, in many, many respects, uh, been a safe place for people of color to, mm. 
you know, live in the comfort of the gospel together and, and understand each other and be understood. And so, so it's not really, it's not really the majority culture's luxury to, or right to, to call into question the existence of, of mono ethnic churches of other ethnicities. Uh, we might want to examine ourselves in our own communities and churches, but, but, uh, so I got, I got challenged on that by, by a, a black colleague and also an Asian colleague. And that, that, that was, uh, the beginning of, uh, I guess an awakening to, to some realities of the difference between black and white and how it is to live in the world that we live in, depending on the mm. color of your skin. And so they taught me well and, and I'm yeah. still learning and growing, but, but that's, that was the origin of that one. Awesome. Yeah, that's that's incredibly helpful. The third voice you're hearing is Pastor Scott Saul, senior pastor of Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, and also the author of the brand new book, A Gentle Answer, Our Secret Weapon in an Age of Us Against Them. He's going to be sticking around for the next two segments here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Back to the Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. You can find us all over the World Wide Web on Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show. That's a great place to interact with the articles we're posting, add a comment, send us a message if you have suggestions for future shows. You can also find out more at 1160hope.com slash the common good and wherever it is you get your podcasts. We've said this a couple of times, not really typically with Scott actually here, but he's sort of the honorary third host of the Common Good, <laughs> really whether he wants to be or not. We reference your writing, Scott, more than almost any other writer or pastor. And if you're unfamiliar, Scott Sauls is the senior pastor of Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, but also the book of a brand new, almost prophetic book called The Gentle Answer, Our Secret Weapon in an Age of Us Against Them. You touched on it briefly in the first segment, but can you just tell us a little more about why you wrote the book in particular and what you sort of hope to accomplish through it? Uh, I wrote the book uh, as uh, an effort to, uh, I guess, speak into whoever might want to listen uh, uh, to what I have to say about what I believe has become a culture characterized by outrage, polarization, um, talking past each other, uh, not listening well and, and uh, expressing opinions and viewpoints and judgments way too prematurely. Uh, and uh, it's, uh, it seems like a climate that's turning in on itself and, Right. Uh, so, uh, Proverbs 15, one came on my radar, which says a gentle answer turns away wrath. And, uh, that turned into a, a, a book idea <laughs> with my publisher. <laughs> and, mm. uh, and so, uh, so I wrote that book and it, it developed into, you know, unintentionally developed in what turns out to be a, a pretty nice, uh, prequel written after the fact, uh, to my first mm. book, Jesus Outside the Lines. You know, this, this, a gentle answer addresses, you know, all the stuff that goes on in our hearts and, and how our hearts change, uh, through encounter, encountering Jesus Christ and his gentleness and humbleness of heart, uh, toward us. And then how that, uh, then ought to have the effect of transforming us into, into more gentle people who can enter into these hostile spaces and um, be more prone to defuse the situation uh, uh, rather than add fuel to the fire, if that makes sense. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. 
And Scott, I know one of the places where I struggle with most where anger <laughs> kind of comes up is on social media, whether it be Facebook or Twitter. And I know you're pretty active there. I wonder uh, how do you protect yourself on social media from getting angry and, and getting riled up? And maybe what are some words of advice to other people who maybe social media tends to be uh, kind of a spark for them? Yeah, well, I, you know, and I, different platforms uh, have different levels of hostility. I think most people are agreed that that's probably Instagram is on the more positive side. <laughs> Facebook somewhere in the middle and Twitter, as somebody referred to Twitter the other day as a cesspool of negativity. Um, <laughs> you know, which, which makes, which makes Twitter, um, you know, potentially the best place to provide a counter voice, uh, mm-hmm. when you have the opportunity. But I, I think engaging, especially online, um, you know, contested issues that, that often are complicated and, and have varying perspectives speaking into the situation. I think the biblical, um, uh, you know, injunctions to be quick to listen and slow to speak. And then, you know, as Jesus taught, uh, before we think about removing a speck from somebody else's eye to consider the fact that there's uh, probably a log in our own, uh, that we have blind spots that we're not aware of. And so we ought to probably start with self-examination before we start launching uh, into, you know, criticism of some other person or group. And, and also I think just remembering other, that other people are just like us. Other people right. are sensitive. Uh, right. Criticism is painful. Uh, sticks and stones may break our bones, but words can cut us deeply and, and to, you know, have, have compassion uh, on, on people who, think differently than you do realize that that they're fighting hard hidden battles just like you are and understand that there's a person behind their, you know, Twitter account or their Facebook profile. There's a human being uh, Mm -hmm. that has hurts and struggles and fears. And, you know, if they're being annoying, it's probably because they're scared of something just like you are. And, and, and so that's kind of the last point is to realize how much of our anger and, and angst, and desire to strike back at somebody comes from our fears and maybe examine what is it that, that we're so afraid of and and where does it find where does that fear find its answer in in the gospel and what Christ came to do and be for us mm-hmm. that's really good I, I think you're right too on both points about Twitter it is wrought with negativity but it is also a phenomenal place for the type of engagement you're talking about I'm thinking about a TED talk I saw from I think her name is Megan Phelps Roper, one of the uh, the daughters of the Westboro Baptist Church. And she shares about actually social media is kind of what helped open her eyes to just how toxic her environment actually was mm-hmm. and how grateful she was for people that were willing to have difficult conversations. Brian and I are both pastors, too. One of the things that we both hear a lot is, well, I don't want to give a gentle answer because sometimes, sometimes Jesus flips tables. So maybe it's time for us to, in a modern sense, go online and start flipping some tables of the person on the other side of the political debate or the theological debate, what do you say to the Christ follower that says, no, it's not time for a gentle answer. It's time for an aggressive answer. It's time to start cracking whips. And I don't want to offer a gentle answer. Well, I would say, first of all, you're not Jesus. And uh, (laughs) so, so don't, 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 don't presume that just because Jesus did it, you should. Um, right. you, you, you are neither their Lord nor their savior. And, mm-hmm. um, and he is, and, you know, I've, I've actually heard the flipping tables argument as a defense for, 
you know, damaging property uh, and rioting right, and things right. of that sort. And, right. you know, the difference there is that, that Jesus was destroying his own property in the temple. He, he mm-hmm. wasn't destroying somebody else's property. Mm-hmm. And, and so, you know, I, I, I think the question, though, does get to a, an important point, and that is that there is such a thing as righteous anger, and there's right. such a thing as unrighteous anger, and you know, righteous anger is the kind of anger that, that attacks problems. Unrighteous anger is the kind that attacks people. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, when you attack a problem, you actually have the, the potential to, to bring the person that you're in disagreement along with you to, to attack the problem together, whether mm-hmm. through consensus or through persuasion or through compromise, attacking problems together, as opposed to attacking people. When you attack mm-hmm. people, um, you know, the, the best thing that could happen is that you make an enemy. Uh, the mm-hmm. worst thing that could happen is that they strike back and, <laughs> and beat you up. So, mm-hmm. uh, uh, and you make a fool of yourself. And so, um, uh, you know, Christ, Christ did not say retaliate to your enemies and said, love your enemies. And, and right. that doesn't mean roll over like a doormat. Um, you know, C.S. Lewis rightly said that Christianity is a fighting religion. It sees what's wrong with the world and, and goes on the attack. But again, it goes on the attack against the problem, mm-hmm. not against the people. And and so I think there's a significant nuance difference there. That's incredibly helpful. You're listening to Scott Saul, senior pastor of Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee. Also the author of the brand new phenomenal book, A Gentle Answer, Our Secret Weapon in an Age of Us Against Them. He's going to stick around for just one more segment here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. You can find us a bunch of places, probably too many places. Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show, 1160health.com slash The Common Good, Instagram and Twitter at Common Good Talk, and wherever it is you get your podcast. We are joined, as we like to affectionately say, our honorary third host here at The Common Good, the Reverend Scott Saul, Senior Pastor of Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, and the author of the brand new book, A Gentle Answer, Our Secret Weapon, in an age of us against them. I've done a disproportionate amount of talking, so Brian, I'm going to let you jump in with the next question. Scott, uh, one of the reasons I've really enjoyed reading your books or listening to your sermons is just kind of how open and vulnerable you are. You've talked a lot. I've remember listening to a sermon about, uh, you talked about insomnia issues and anxiety issues. I've always wanted to ask you, uh, why are you so open? A lot of pastors aren't. So kind of what is the thought process behind that, and what is the result of that bit in your church? The thought process behind what I'm sorry, I, I, you phased out your, a little bit there. Your, your, just your openness around your own struggles, insomnia, anxiety, and things like that. Oh, I mean, I'm open about it because um, I, I hope it'll help people. I mean, I, I, I assume that every struggle that I have is, is a struggle that is shared by, you know, many other people in my own midst. And so, uh, you know, and I see the pattern in, in the scriptures too, that, you know, the apostle Paul, uh, Christ himself, uh, are, you know, very open and transparent, uh, about their, their own weakness and their own needs. You know, Jesus asking the Samaritan woman for a drink, uh, saying that he thirsts at the cross, uh, mm-hmm. you know, and if it's Christ himself, uh, is, you know, asking for help, uh, then, then, then maybe we ought to 
consider the the value of weakness ourselves as well. Yeah. Hmm. So you you mentioned at the beginning of this interview that you guys had potentially started to meet. Again, this is something Brian and I have been trying to navigate as pastors. Not everyone in our church agrees with whether or not we should start meeting again, whether or not we should quote unquote be open. What has it been like as a, as a pastor navigating? I imagine a myriad of questions and opinions kind of amidst all of this coronavirus stuff. Yeah. I mean, we've got um, probably as you do a mixture of uh, people who are not ready at all uh, to gathering groups and uh, others who probably secretly feel like we never should have stopped gathering in the first place. Um, and, and then most people are somewhere in between those two uh, places. But, you know, we've, we've started to re-enter gathered worship and we're keeping our full online worship options available for those who uh, are either in, immunocompromised or elderly or, you know, at risk in some some other way or have comorbidity issues. Uh, so we want to continue obviously to, to provide, you know, live stream, uh, worship at home, uh, options. Uh, and, and then, uh, you know, our, our in-person worship services are very, um, very protected. Uh, you know, we're asking people to wear, uh, face coverings, especially during singing where there's deep inhaling and exhaling, uh, and also as they come and go to wear face coverings and, um, you know, we're sanitizing the place. We've got hand sanitizing stations all, all over the building. Um, we've got to take got a reservation system, uh, mm-hmm. that enables us to do tracking and tracing. We know exactly where people sit because we're assigning seats, you know, in case somebody does report they have the virus, we can reach out to those who are sitting around them to let them know to get tested. Um, and we're, you know, practicing social distancing as well. We're, we're only allowing, uh, up to, I think 25% of the seats in our sanctuary to be filled and we're spacing those out. Uh, and we've also provided outdoor space with sort of a jumbotron, uh, mm-hmm. um, you know, LCD, uh, TV or LED TV. I'm sorry. And, and so we're trying to provide as many options as we can. Thankfully we got the resources and ability and staffing to do that but um but yeah we're we're entering very carefully uh to to put it succinctly Hmm. re-entering very carefully yeah uh scott again is the author of a new book out called the gentle answer our secret weapon in an age of us against them and scott i'm wondering as we close if you could just paint a picture uh, if the church did a good job of counterculturally living out this gentleness what do you think uh, our witness or the effect would be in our culture uh, by the church. Effect on the culture by the church. Just the effect uh, on I, the I, culture around us. Yeah. Well, I, I, I hope that the church will um, uh, see this as an opportunity to become a non-participant uh, in, mm-hmm. in the uglier rhetoric Um and to, to live counterculturally in a life-giving way. You know, we hear the term counterculture and we think hostile toward the culture, and it's actually the opposite. You know, bibli- to be biblically countercultural is to actually be for the culture and for our neighbor, uh, to love our neighbor as ourselves. And so um, if anyone has the resources 
you know, to, to take leadership in, um, you know, engagement in a more honoring way toward our neighbor, where again, we attack problems, but not people is the church. You know, we've, we've got Christ, we've got the Holy spirit, we've got each other to spur one another on toward love and good deeds as the, as the Bible says. And so, um, I hope that that will have an impact on the culture in the mm-hmm. same way that culture was influenced when Christians took the lead in the civil rights movement or in the abolition mm-hmm. of the slave trade or in the invention of the hospital or in the invention of the, of higher education. Christians took the lead in all of those, of those issues and, and made the world a better place. And I, I hope that maybe we can catch a vision for that uh, in the current mm-hmm. climate as well. I love that. Scott, thank you so much for taking the time to go with us today. We really appreciate it. Scott is the senior pastor of Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, and also the author of a brand new book, A Gentle Answer, Our Secret Weapon in an Age of Us Against Them. You can learn more at scottsauls.com. That's scottsauls.com. And I highly, highly recommend that you do so. Scott, thanks again for joining us today. We appreciate it. My pleasure, guys. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Always a joy. Yep, bye-bye. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Coming up this hour, Louis Giglio is in some hot water. And then for the rest of the hour, Jerry and Dallas Jenkins will be joining us. You're listening to The Common Good. everyone, welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins along with Brian Fromm. I don't have a lot of time, so I'm going to skip the particulars. Just find us on Facebook, listen to the podcast, subscribe, write, and review. It helps us out a whole ton. Brian, uh, it was all over the World Wide Web today. Louis Giglio, uh, this was during their service on Sunday, and he had a conversation with Lecrae and Dan Cathy of Chick-fil-A. And uh, he said a couple of things. And again, this was a part of it, like an hour long conversation, but there's about a two minute clip I want to play for you all. And then he actually just issued an apology a little bit ago that we'll play in a moment. But let's listen to this clip from their sermon, their conversation at Passion Church just this last weekend. You know, Lecrae, it's interesting because I feel like on the inside of the church, we're fighting this historical context you talk about. In other words, we love the blessing of the cross, but we don't we don't love to sit in it mm. and realize this is what God's asking me to do, to die to myself and to live for him, whatever context that's going to look like for me. But I want to flip that upside down because I think the other side of it is true with our nation's history. We miss, we understand the curse that was slavery, mm-hmm. white people do, and we say that was bad, but we miss the blessing of slavery that it actually built up the framework for the world that white people live in yes. and lived in. And so a lot of people call this white privilege. And when you say those two words, it just is like a fuse goes off for a lot of white people because they don't want somebody telling them to check their privilege. And so I know that you and I both have struggled in these days with, hey, yeah. if the phrase is the trip up, let's get over the phrase and let's get down to the heart. Sure. Let's get down to what then do you want to call it? And I think maybe a great thing for me is to call it white blessing, that I'm living in the blessing of the curse 
that happened generationally mm-hmm. that allowed me to grow up in Atlanta. And, you know, you're talking about being 57. If you were 57, I can't imagine being that old, Dan, and being 57. <laughs> but uh, I've said to our church, Lecrae, a few weeks ago, when I was born, the day I was born on Boulevard at Georgia Baptist Hospital in 1958, black people did not have equal rights in this city. Not my grandparents' lifetime or their lifetime in my lifetime. This is right now mm-hmm. what we're talking about today. And call it what you want, Dan. I think the issue begins with a white person saying, I want to try to put myself in somebody else's shoes. Mm-hmm. And I find it's far easier to dismiss it all by saying, you know, I'm not, a, I'm not, that's not me. That doesn't reflect me. And I just went through diversity training at my job for the last four days. And so that's all we hear. That's not the way I am. But I feel like dismissing just as a response probably is an indication that there's something a little bit bigger under the surface mm-hmm. that maybe we don't want to deal with. Okay, Brian. So before we actually listen to the apology, what, yep. what stood out to you there? Man, I had so many feelings about this, uh, a couple of different things. One, uh, I, I felt like it was, it was not, uh, I felt like it was sloppy. I felt like Louis Giglio was sloppy. And, uh, cards on the table. I'm a Louis Giglio fan. I, I like to read his stuff and listen to his stuff. Felt like using the phrase white blessing, even though he was talking about it in relation to the curse, uh, is always going to end up in a bad spot. And, um, and, you know, I think he rightfully got ripped for it. And he, as you said, he got killed on Twitter last night uh, and this morning. Uh, but I also was, we're about to listen to the apology. I felt good that after the apology, a lot of the people who ripped them came back and said, thank you for your apology. It yep. wasn't like this cancel thing. Right. Um, well, and, and I some, really felt some it was for sure. At least what I saw. Um, the apology, I think, came across as heartfelt. So it felt sloppy to me. Um and it felt like uh, rightfully what he said could have been hurtful to people. I'd like to believe that's not how it was meant, but I totally uh, can see how his word choice uh, really set people off. I what did you it, think? I think it was more than could have been hurtful, man. I, I think that's that's like a that's a kissing cousin from I'm sorry if that offended you. I think I think it was more intense than that. And I don't he maybe he didn't. I don't think he intended it. But that's also part of the problem. This is some of my issue, even listening to it. It was a lot of him talking and it's his church and he's the pastor. But I feel like right now there, there needs to be a whole lot more like I'm going to quiet my mouth. And I'm going to listen. I need to learn. And I think that's part of what got him into trouble. But you mentioned his apology. So let's let's listen to that. And then Brian and I will respond with the remaining seconds that we have. I just wanted to come directly to you today and sincerely apologize for the use of the phrase on Sunday, white blessing. And I extend that apology today to every single person who is listening to me right now. But most importantly, I extend that apology to my black brothers and sisters. I, like so many, am so burdened about what is happening in our nation right now. And I'm heartbroken about where we are as a nation. And one of the things that I'm most heartbroken about is trying to help myself continue to learn and to help my white brothers and sisters understand that white privilege is real. And in trying to get that sentiment across on Sunday, I used the phrase white blessing for which I'm deeply sorry. Horrible choice of words does not reflect my heart at all. I don't, to be clear, believe there's any blessing in slavery. To the contrary, what I'm trying 
to understand and help people see is that I, my white brothers and sisters, we sit in large part where we are today because of the centuries of gross injustice done to our black brothers and sisters. So this is my heart. This is what I want to more fully understand because I believe this will help us stay engaged in this conversation so that we can all move forward together. So thank you for just letting me open my heart to you today. Thank you for letting me apologize directly to you today. And I ask that you would pray for me and possibly even join me as I just desire to continue to learn, to understand, to stay engaged, and to be a part of all of us moving forward together to the place that God wants us to be. All right. So I, I'll be honest. I, I appreciated the apology. It still felt like it didn't quite go far enough because it didn't feel like there was any, there was no like action step forward. There was no like call to action. I'm going to listen to these. I'm going to buy this book. I'm going to, you know what I mean? Like if it felt mm-hmm. like January Morris, and I do appreciate his contrition there. And I would encourage you go and listen to the whole conversation, right. not just right. that clip. Um, but it was, it was, I think your words, right. It was, it was sloppy, but it also potentially, and this is where it gets really tricky, kind of revealed an undergirding issue though. So while it may have been sloppy and that's what made it to video, they still had the chance to edit that out and they didn't, which shows, mm. I think maybe some more infrastructure stuff that's maybe at play here. And I know we're out of time, Brian, but any, any final thoughts about this? I think it's something you've been saying over and over again. I think it raises the the importance of listening because even if it's sloppy and something that you have a blind spot to, that, that's the whole point of listening to find out, oh, I do have blind spots that are hurtful. Uh, and so I think it again raises again what you've been pounding home over the last couple of weeks uh, that we've got to get better at listening and we've got to make that our priority right now. And just to be really clear, just to say it as bluntly as I can, um, what what we're talking about, what has been experienced, is not a blessing. That's not that's not a, that's not a ble- and, sure. I, and I th- I think to say white privilege makes people uncomfortable, but we're going to have to get okay. I think with actually addressing some things that particularly white people sure. that make us uncomfortable. And we would love to know what you think. This is all shared at our Facebook page. Weigh in. What what did you think? Was it too aggressive against Louis? Or people have not gone hard enough? What did you think of his apology? We would love for that to be a place for all of us to be able to have a conversation. I'm really, really excited about the rest of this hour, though, because Dallas Jenkins, who many of you know, the creator and director of The Chosen, is going to be joined by his dad, Jerry Jenkins, who is the author of the Left Behind series, along with more than 200 other books. They're going to join us for the remainder of the hour here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey everyone, welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. You can find us a bunch of places on Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show, 1160hope.com slash The Common Good, and wherever it is you get your podcast. If you're a podcaster, I know I say it really probably too much, but subscribing, rating, and reviewing, all of that does really help us out a whole lot. And we are absolutely thrilled. I think our first father-son duo since the pandemic started we have both jerry and dallas jenkins Mm -hmm. on the show on the line welcome to the show gentlemen thank you thank you you've had me on many many times but now you're actually excited (laughs) right (laughs) i didn't want to say it but the subtext was a little heavy you're right you're uh you're spot on for saying the last the last two years have all been in just just a setup to to try to get to get me to bring my dad on we were just using you this whole time the left behind author finally on your show. <laughs> That's exactly right. I'm wondering, could you each take just a minute or two and uh, introduce yourself to our audience? 
Dad, you go first. All righty. Um, name's Jerry Jenkins, and uh, I am the author of the Left Behind series, and I've been a writer my whole adult life. And uh, Dallas is my <laughs> beloved son. Wow. In whom he is at times <laughs> pleased. Uh, uh, yes, I'm Dallas, uh, and I've, I've been known as the son of Jerry Jenkins for a while now, which is a good thing to be. And uh, I'm currently responsible for The Chosen, which hopefully your listeners have heard about because I've been on the show enough. But uh, ideally, you've also got new listeners each and every time. Right. So if right. they haven't heard of The Chosen, it's the first multi-season show about the life of Christ. And uh, it's available now free on the app. But um, I, my dad is actually the one who got me into movies way back in the day. I was a, a, a sports guy and uh, growing up and wanted to be an athlete or a broadcaster. And uh, finally, my dad revealed to me when I was old enough to watch good movies. He said uh, that he was a movie buff and started showing me great movies. And that's what kind of got me going into this business. So I think I've uh, I've always kind of followed in his footsteps as a storyteller. But uh, now it's been fun to to see The Chosen getting around the world and having some of the impact that it's had because uh, I think uh, it was also great to follow in the footsteps of Left Behind. Yeah, and Jerry, mm -hmm. I wanted to pick up there. Uh, having been the author of Left Behind series that had so many people reading it and, and so much acclaim, how has it been for you as a dad to watch The Chosen and the stuff Dallas created uh, having a similar impact and just going around the world the way that it is? Well, in many ways, it's it's almost hard to believe. I mean, um, for lightning to strike an author the way Left Behind did uh, is really a once in a lifetime experience, and and a, a none, none in a lifetime experience for most. It's just really that remote. But to to see it sort of happen twice in the same family is is bizarre. And I have kind of a a full circle story too because. When I was eight years old, I had rheumatic fever and spent uh, almost three weeks in the hospital. And my mother took the, the time, took, took advantage of that time to teach me to memorize John 3, the mm. whole chapter. Mm. And, and so that's, you know, obviously anything you memorize when you're a kid sticks with right. you your whole life. Right. To, to now decades later see my son bring that very scene of Nicodemus meeting Jesus at night uh, to life on the screen, you can imagine the impact that had on me emotionally. And mm. I've had to watch all, I say had to, uh, I've had to watch all eight episodes of the, the first season, and I counter, I kept track. I've, I've seen each of them 22 <laughs> times because I'm not. I'm novelizing the the first season. You know, each season is going to be a novel, and wow. I finished that. And what struck me was that I I never got tired of one scene. I mean, it never got old to me. It still moved me emotionally every time. So, long answer to a short question. It's it just thrills me to see what's what's come of this and and the fact that my son created it. Okay, I'm going to do my best not to cry during this interview. Like I'm, a, I'm still sort of a new dad, so all of this like father son love is uh, hit me right in the feels. Dallas, one of the things that I appreciate about you is you're actually pretty vocal about your past failures. You share a lot of memories uh, on Facebook of projects you thought were going to blow up and then they didn't, and the chosen success has been remarkable. But I'm wondering what was it like growing up as Jerry Jenkins' kid, knowing that you wanted to be a writer to go into a similar vein like was that pressure or was that like vision casting for you or some kind of mix of both yeah i wouldn't say it was pressure um i think that pressure comes if you decide to put pressure on yourself to live up to something or if you've got an overbearing father mm -hmm. who's 
demanding that you follow in his footsteps, like a great, great Santini example of someone who's just, you know, yelling at his kid the whole time. Uh, that, that never, of course, happened. Um, my dad and I always actually had very similar interests. I mean, even with sports, I was a big sports freak. I got that from my dad. I was a big, uh, as soon as he introduced me to movies, I, I became really into movies. Uh, I was a, a very, very av- uh, avid reader. I read constantly. So uh, storytelling was something I was always surrounded by. <coughs> but I never felt pressure for any one thing. Mm. But I would say that um, one of the examples that I was able to witness was observing success and failure. My dad's written almost 200 books. Wow. And wow. so some of them we thought were going to be big successes. I mean, I've been with him when we were on tour to promote like a book um, or a book that was connected to one of my movies or whatever. And where we show up at a, at a, at a bookstore to do a signing and there's, you know, three people there (laughs) and, and, and the bookstore had bought 200 books in anticipation and they uh, were then embarrassed because no one showed up and we were embarrassed because no one showed up. And then I've also been at the mall of America when they were doing a book signing for left behind and there were lines literally that were two hours long snaking around most of the mall. And my dad's reaction was the same both times. Um, He wasn't overly arrogant from the, you know, left behind success. And he wasn't overly self loathing when a book would be disappointing in sales. Mm. Um, And so I, I, I tried to learn from that. Um, you can't control it. I think my dad probably learned that before I did. I mean, my, my story of how I learned from the failure of, at the box office of The Resurrection of Gavin Stone, how I learned that it's not my job to feed the 5,000, it's only to provide the loaves mm-hmm. and fish, that, that's become an impactful story for, for many of the fans of The Chosen over the last couple of years. I think my dad, I think, learned that a long time ago. Um, it just took me longer to figure it out. Um, but that's that, again, that, that's like my dad said, it's a long answer to a short question. But um, I do think that um, the pressure that I put on myself is just to try to make sure that whatever loaves and fishes that I do provide are acceptable to Jesus. What he chooses to do with him uh, is out of my control. And, and Jerry, I'm, I'm just curious. Uh, we've asked Dallas this about the chosen, but what was it like when the left behind books first came out and they just kind of exploded? What was that like for you as an author? It was really something. And, and, uh, you know, because it hit so big and so fast, I got a lot of questions about, you know, people would say, so have you written anything else? <laughs> have you ever written any other books? Left Behind, um, in, in two months, it'll be the 25th anniversary of the, really? of the release of Left Behind, the first, the first book. And I was 45 years old at that time. And, you know, Dallas is, is going to be 45 next month. So this is happening to us at the same periods in our lives. But um, Left Behind was my 125th book. Now, I'd, wow. had some, I'd had some successes before that. I'd done a lot of sports books with famous athletes. I'd done um, Billy Graham's autobiography, worked with him on that. And um, so there were, you know, there were successes and there were some bestsellers, but nothing like like Left Behind. And it... it um, Tyndale House actually published um, more covers than they did. Um, I, I'm sorry, I'm saying this the wrong way. They actually published more book blocks than they did wow. jackets, because wow. because if the book doesn't sell, you can trash the the book blocks. They're, they they don't cost much. The jackets actually cost a little more, mm-hmm. and so they they printed. I think it was thirty five thousand books hardbacks. 
and um, 15 or 20,000 jackets. Well, when they started selling fast, they quickly went back to press for more jackets and they adjusted things on the jacket, you know, little, little, not typos, but um, little inaccuracies or things they wish they'd done differently. And, um, and so there are actually, uh, you know, there's one set of 35,000 first editions, which are very valuable, but the ones with the original jacket are more valuable than the ones with the second one. So no um, kidding. it's, that was one of the bizarre things that happened. And, and then I can remember when the third title um, made sales reach a million copies total. And wow. Tyndale sent me a, a framed thing of the, 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 the three covers and said, you know, a million sales. And I can remember at that time thinking I was pretty proud of myself. I was thinking, yeah. wow, I've really pulled something off here. I mean, every, anybody would love to have a million sales of all their books put together, but here's just three. And, and then the fourth book, the publisher called me um, and he said, check, check Amazon for sales on book four. And I said, well, it doesn't release, right, for two weeks. And he said, that's right. I looked on Amazon. It was already number one on Amazon pre-sales. And, wow. and I had the opposite response that I had to that framed thing. It was like, I, I will never take personal credit for this again as long as I live. And it just it was sort of hang on for dear life because, um, you know, the, the thing started selling so crazy. It was uh, the first title was selling – 375,000 copies per month for two years. I mean, it was just nuts. Just crazy. Well, I feel like we have a lot in common because I remember when we got our first millionth <laughs> listener on this show. And that, was, that was a really great day. If, uh, if you're just joining us, we have Jerry and Dallas Jenkins on the show. Jerry Jenkins, the author of the Left Behind series, among 200 other books, apparently. And then Dallas Jenkins, the director and creator of The Chosen. Coming up next, I want to ask them not just about successes and failures, but what happens when you start taking heat for the project that's starting to get some notoriety? That's coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins along with Brian Fromm. Find us all over the place. Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show. That's where we post our articles. Send us a message. You can find us at 1160hope.com slash the common good. And wherever it is, you get your podcast. If you wouldn't mind subscribing, rating, and reviewing, all of that does magically mystically somehow help us out and uh, i think our only second ever father-son duo jerry jenkins author of the left behind series and a whole smattering of other books dallas jenkins creator and director of the chosen and we've been talking a lot about so far what it's like to be on the receiving end of just this sort of unimaginable success and you both have such unique and also weirdly similar stories of success of things just sort of blowing up but i also know that once things kind of grow that big, you're also likely to kind of catch some heat, particularly among Christians. That seems to be a thing that sometimes Christians sort of step in. And uh, I'm, I want to hear from you first, Jerry. What was it like when when the critics really started coming out, when they started coming after you? What, what was it like navigating some of those seasons? It was a learning experience for me. And fortunately, I'd had, I'd had the experience of working with Mr. Graham on his uh, autobiography. And he talked to me about the same thing, about how he, he had given himself to this simple message of evangelism that he'd preached, you know, all over the world. And when people started criticizing him for being too ecumenical or too inclusive or whatever, he said he, his initial response was pain and he, he wanted to defend himself. And he would write to these people, write back to him and say, 
you know, I'm, I'm just trying to do what God wants me to do. And I'm, and if I invite some local pastor who might be more liberal than I am to sit on the platform, he's going to sit under the gospel maybe for the first time. And of course, people would argue with him and, and criticize him. And he said he finally learned that the only response that he could give to critics was to say, thank you for caring enough to be so forthright in your message to me. I trust that I can count on you to continue to pray for me. And it just, you know, soft answer turns away wrath. People would write and apologize and and pledge their prayers and that type of thing. What really got to me was, you know, when, when the book was selling in the tens of thousands the first year, people were just sort of intrigued by it. When it started doing this crazy stuff of selling, you know, millions a year, um, it was it was really different. All of a sudden, it had all kinds of critics, and people didn't just say, I, did, I disagree with you on this aspect or this approach or your timing or whatever it is. Right. They would accuse Dr. LaHaye and me of doing it for the money, um, milking it for all it's worth, and it was never, you know, the, the income and the means that it provided were never a blessing or something we could, you know, assist the church with. It was always lining our coffers, uh, filling our coffers or lining our pockets or a filthy lucre, that type of thing. And I found that even though I, I felt I had a pretty good attitude about it because of Mr. Graham's suggestion of how to respond, it, it still hit me really hard to see people criticize Dr. LaHaye because I knew him personally. And I knew that he wasn't selfish. He didn't do it for the money. And so I would I would defend him. If people would write and, and say those things about him, I would say, how dare you? You don't even know the man. I do. And so so back off. <laughs> yeah, right. Dallas, I'm wondering how you'd answer that question, too, when critics come for stuff that you've been making. I really think that it's important to have what I, I, I call it a superpower, um, which is where you, you literally just don't mm. care. Um, and, and that sounds harsh, but, um, you know, I think I got to a place in my life where, um, but, but by the time I decided to make a movie about, or, you know, a show about Jesus and making the decision to not, um, rely solely on scripture, which is probably the number one thing that people criticize, uh, before they've seen it, or even sometimes when they've seen it, they'll just say, oh, I only want to watch things that are direct verse by verse reenactment of scripture. But I already In made, English, right? yeah, King James English. Yes. <laughs> and um, so, w- when I made the decision to to do that, um, to make a show in this manner, and to have music that felt different from usual Jesus shows, and to have Jesus tell jokes, and um, you know, all, all, on our social media, I mean, our social media has a kind of a personality as well. We do we do jokes a lot. We do behind the scenes stuff. We're not, we're not a super pious, serious social media channel. Um, that decision was made a couple of years ago. So it would be very weird if someone said, hey, you guys shouldn't do this uh, because you shouldn't portray anything that's not in scripture for me to go, gosh, I never thought of that. That's a good point. Um, I shouldn't, I guess I'll change course now. Um, mm-hmm. That would be really silly. And, uh, and, and, and would, it would reflect quite a dumb move on my part to have gone to this much trouble to not have thought it through. So hmm. my point is you, you get to a pl- if, if you've made a decision that you feel good about before the Lord and you, you do have that m- mentality of my job is just to bring the best loaves and fishes that I can provide and, and have hope that they're acceptable to Jesus. And when you truly believe and w- along with the counsel of others and, and, and uh, through scriptural study and all that, that what you're doing is the right thing, 
then criticism really shouldn't be much of an issue. By the same token, you shouldn't let praise be an issue either because it can be they they can both be equally damaging. So um, I really work hard uh, with my the people in my life, like my wife, um, who who helps me with this. But, you know, friends, family and then just, you know, my my regular relationship with, with Christ to not ride the waves of positive or negative feedback um, and to really not not have what, what we call uh, in Scripture the fear of man and right. to, to really focus just on um, on God's approval. And so uh, I really, you know, we get criticized all the time. I've been called, you know, na- every name you can think of over the last couple of years. And uh, and I just went into it knowing that that was probably going to happen. And and I just try to focus on my task, which is to to, to honor Christ with a show about him and his people. You bring up a really good point, too, because one of the strange similarities between both of you and your work is that you're attempting to artistically convey something that is in some way biblical or theological. And I imagine some of the heat that you've received over the years maybe is in some way similar. We only have like a couple minutes left, but I'm wondering, could either of you weigh in on the significance or maybe a better way to say this, the role of artistry and creativity and faith? Because it feels like the blending of those two things is so important and yet so often so hard to do for all the reasons you've listed. Either of you could weigh in on that. Yeah, I'll I'll speak to this real quick, Dad, uh, and then you can uh, respond if you don't mind. But uh, because I I think I've I've been answering this question a lot lately um, because I find it interesting that not only am I following in my dad's footsteps with with this kind of project um, having having a global response, but it's both projects are interpretations of scripture and, and with an attempt to make it more understandable, relatable, accessible to the common person without watering down the message um, and honoring scripture. And all I can tell you is that I've, when I, I, I saw this with Left Behind and I saw, I'm seeing this with The Chosen, the responses are the same. I've never read the Bible more than I have since I've watched this show. Right. I've never read right. the Bible more since I've read the books or the word of God now comes alive to me after reading this. So whether it's right or wrong, um, you know, is up for people to argue on on comment boards. But I will say that the that that the results have been similar, which is people are not replacing the Bible with my show or with the Left Behind books. Mm. They are serving to draw them even closer and more passionately to those to, to, to Scripture. That's really helpful. Jerry, is there anything that you would add in that regard? Well, on a similar vein, I was actually, uh, I've been a professional writer since before I was old enough to drive. I was a sports writer at age 14. But when I was about 16 at camp, I I followed a call, answered a call to full-time Christian work. And I thought I'd have to give up the writing and become a missionary or a pastor. But a counselor, a wise counselor said to me, Sometimes God equips us before he calls us. So mm. don't be too quick to turn your back on, on the writing. That may be the vehicle that you use to follow this call, which changed my entire view as a writer of what success means. To me, success is obedience. If I write to, to follow the call of Christian, full-time Christian work, like Dallas said, the sales and the results are totally out of our hands anyway. All we can do is our best work. And so you do that, and then if, if people criticize, um, I think that helps helps that roll off my back too. And and because this happened to to both of us in our forties instead of our twenties, uh, we may have developed a little spiritual maturity by that time, so that it uh, we have a different perspective on it. Hmm. That's incredibly helpful. You've been listening to Jerry Jenkins, author of the Left Behind series and hundreds of other books. Dallas Jenkins. 
creator and director of The Chosen. They're going to stick around for one more segment where I want to ask them, what have they learned from each other? That's coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins along with Brian Fromm. Find us on Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show. You'll see our Photoshop, our Photoshop mask wearing faces there. You can also find us at 1160hope.com slash the common good and wherever it is you get podcasts and we've been joined for most of the hour by jerry jenkins and dallas jenkins that's right they are related in fact father and son jerry jenkins is the author of the left behind series along with a whole smattering of other books and dallas jenkins the director and creator of the chosen and we've been kind of getting a peek behind the curtain not only to their processing creativity what success and failure look like what it's like taking heat especially from evangelical audiences one thing that i'm really curious about is what do you feel like you've learned from each other because it sounds like you have a lot of mutual respect for each other in your process and how you deal with success and failure and dallas i want to start with you what do you feel like is one of the greatest things that you have learned or observed from your dad particularly as it pertains to your work we are different storytellers we have a different approach to things i think the the thing that i really uh, have tried to to learn from the most and 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 I feel like I'm finally getting it over the last couple of years is his truly genuine unfailing humility um and mm. gentleness um he is that, that's one of the ways we're very different and in fact when you ask him the same question he may speak to uh if he's learned anything from me I I I think my approach to confrontation my approach to criticism and even self-criticism criticizing our work I'm probably a little bit more gr- aggressive than he is but uh, his gentleness and humility is unfailing. I mean, it, it just over the course of decades. And uh, I'm, I've always been a little bit more aggressive, a little bit more confrontational. And I'm, and I've, I've learned um, a lot of the principles from him uh, that are finally starting to sink in, which not only is gentle answer, answer turns away wrath, but also things such as um, just not responding to certain uh, people who are confrontational or aggressive mm. Um, but then also just in the midst of all of it, uh, whether it was the, the success of Left Behind or the failure of other things, I hinted at this earlier, but just a consistent humility. Um, and that applies to all aspects uh, of his life. Mm. And uh, I've that, that didn't come easy to me. I've struggled with narcissism and um, kind of self-gratification um, in many ways throughout my life. And I've I've learned over the course of time, it's been beaten out of me to try to be less self-focused and and my dad had a lot to do with that and jerry how would how would you answer that question what do you feel like you've learned watching your son kind of navigate his own journey in this i think there is a a big difference in our approaches uh, mostly generationally i mean i was raised by um parents who you know came up through the depression and and world war ii and that type of thing Mm -hmm. and they were very private and very quiet um, and there were things that were expected and not expected, but not talked about. And so I remember when, when we first started having kids, and Dallas is our oldest of three boys, um, one of the things I determined to do was to let my kids talk to me, even if they disagreed and argued. Um, and my wife's a little different on that score. She was, you know, old school too. And so she was like, because I said so, and that's the end of the conversation. And, you know, um, and it, it worked. They adore her too. But um, I, I can remember when Dallas was a kid, he would want to talk and argue, and you know, and and I would be up for that all day, all night. It's okay. Let's let's talk things through. Um, 
he is much more open and honest about failures and about you know everything. Uh, my generation, we don't talk about our medical mm. issues or our mm. struggles or temptations. Uh, I've learned to do that more from him. And also, I have a little accountability group. There's a couple of dear friends of mine closer to my age that are part of my accountability group. But I also added Dallas to that mix. So of the four of us, he's obviously the youngest. But it's you have to really be uh, brave and vulnerable mm. to to put your own son on your accountability team because there's the one guy I can't BS. He knows me and, mm-hmm. and you know, we, and, and he'll, he'll, you know, call me out. That's what I wanted. I wanted true accountability. And um, so that's, you know, I, I've, I think I've learned that uh, from him, that transparency is something that can be very freeing as well. That's awesome. Hey Dallas, I'm, I'm just curious uh, since we last talked uh, in this quarantine, me and my family watched all of The Chosen. Now we are we loved it. I'm curious. My kids were wondering about season two. Where does it stand? How's the money raising? What what can you expect from season two of The Chosen? Well, if if you finally watch the show, I need to take like I'll a moment what, of silence. We watched uh, it eight <laughs> days in a row and loved it, buddy. <laughs> uh, you really want to make I sure did. you get that in this segment. <laughs> Yeah, I can't. I need. I need a moment to recover from that news. Uh, so, well, thank you for watching it, and for and I'm glad you liked it. And I'm, and I'm also. It's always gratifying to hear that the that kids Absolutely. have enjoyed it too. That's something I didn't actually expect. But we're hearing from a lot of parents saying, "Thank you, my kids actually enjoy watching a Jesus project," which is which is tough to do sometimes. Um, but yeah, season two, we are currently uh, the first four episodes have been written. Um, and, and we're funded for the first half of season two. So we're ready to go. We're looking for locations now. We don't know exactly where we're going to shoot. Uh, we're navigating through, you know, COVID protocols, uh-huh. which is a challenge for a lot of productions figuring that out. Um, but as soon as we've got that down and our, uh, well, fun, once we choose a location, we're hoping to be shooting this year so that it can be released, uh, early next year. So we don't know about the entire season at once, but we know that at least the first half of the season, we're also writing episode, you know, the second half of the season as we speak. So prayers are appreciated for the writing. Uh, yeah. there's a lot of, lot of responsibility, obviously, when you're writing, um, for, for you know, a show about, the, the the son of God and and his followers and the greatest story ever told and it's even more pressure now knowing that it's in literally every country in the world it's subtitled in fifty languages uh, and wow. and more every week and uh, so people are now relying on it in many ways for some of their discipleship and and uh, wow. and so we that doesn't as successful as season one has been that the blank page doesn't care about that when you sit down to write as my yeah, dad right. knows more than ever. Uh, more than anyone. And so, um, yeah, we don't know exactly when season two is coming out, but on our social media pages, we give behind the scenes info every other day. And, and, uh, mm. and so, in fact, we just released a new trailer, uh, just yesterday morning that's done really well just because for season one, because, um, it's a little bit more, it's a trailer that's a little bit more kind of, uh, r- relatable to younger people. It's kind of a cool, aggressive trailer. And, mm. um, so anyway, my, the only reason I bring that up is because we're still working on expanding our audience and making sure that enough people hear about yeah. season one and that people like you, Brian, can, can actually watch it. <laughs> <laughs> two, two years, even though you knew the guy who made it, you, uh, waited it, that it long helped the quarantine. Let me tell you. <laughs> Well, just a reminder, too, we haven't mentioned it enough. Download the app. Right. It's free to watch. There's no reason not to. It's really – download the app. It's called The Chosen. Follow my Facebook because you guys are always posting great content on Facebook as well. Jerry, I'm wondering as we wrap up, 
what's on the horizon for you? Are you writing? Are you working on projects? What are you, what are you cooking up? Yeah, right now I'm writing a sequel to my last novel, which was called Dead Sea Rising, and this one is called Dead Sea Conspiracy. And um, I finished the first uh, novelization of The Chosen, the first season. Uh, that's scheduled to come out this uh, next spring from Focus on the Family. And then as soon as I get the scripts and the, um, you know, I really like to, to watch it besides just use the scripts to novelize these seasons. So that'll mm. be next is to, to do the, uh, the second season novelization. Awesome. That's remarkable. You've been listening to Dallas and Jerry Jenkins. Jerry Jenkins, author of the Left Behind series, along with hundreds of other books, also a novelization of The Chosen, of which Dallas is not only the creator, but the director. Gentlemen, thank you so much for taking the time to join us on the show today. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for having us on. It's really, really been a joy. Come back sometime. We'd love to have you back. Thanks. You've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life.